Hosea chapter 13 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning's message will be a little different than normal. It's going to be topical. Maybe I should call it expositopical. Um, I have preached this verse from Hosea before, so I want to read the text, the verse from Hosea, and give a brief explanation about what it means within the the confines of Hosea's book, but then quickly move to how the Apostle Paul applies it in 1 Corinthians, because sometimes, just sometimes, a verse is bursting at the seams with a story to tell. Hosea chapter 13, our text is going to be verse 14. It says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hid from my eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful for this day. We ask that you would please Um, enlighten our minds that use your uh, Holy Spirit to um, open our hearts to the truth of your word. We thank you for preserving it through the um, hand of your servant Hosea. And we ask, Lord, that you would uh, give me the spiritual insight and the physical strength necessary to uh, proclaim truth and ask that you would please forgive me of my sin. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think you know fairly well by now the context of Hosea. Israel as a nation had slid further and further into sin, and so God warns through Hosea that judgment is going to come. And through multiple layers of uh, prophetic prophecy, uh, God tells his people, I'm going to be like a moth that consumes your stuff. I'm going to be like a lion that tears you into pieces. In fact, earlier in this chapter, God essentially says that this whole message is to a bunch of dead men. Back in verse 1, he describes the nation as having exalted itself, offending through idol worship, and thus they are condemned, he says, that they offended through Baal worship, and when he did that, he died. But even those experiencing the most desperate consequences of their sin, the wrath of God himself, even they have a source of help. So as this develops, for example, in verse 9, the Lord says, O Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. Even though their sin had invited death, Hosea's hopeful message is that God has a plan to overcome death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul is making a a different but related argument. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's making an eloquent argument for our hope of salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. And in doing so, you can look At verse 55, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, he quotes our text from Hosea 
in question form. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, or the grave, where is your victory? Our victory, he says in verse 57, comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Both Hosea 13, verse 14, and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, are using this poetic device called personification. Personification gives living characteristics to a non-living object or a a non-living concept. We do this sort of thing all the time. Let me give you a couple of examples. If you have ever heard or used the phrase, time creeps up on you. Or you've said something like, oh, those flowers are begging for water. You have used personification. Both of those are giving characteristics that don't really exist. Time cannot sneak up on you on it in its tiptoes, right? Flowers are not going to fall to their knees and literally beg you for water. Those are poetic devices to make a point. The concept of death in these texts is given human characteristics in order for a point to be made. We do something similar nowadays in our invention of this character called the Grim Reaper. Of course, there is no Grim Reaper. There is no bony, dark, hooded creature carrying around a sickle, you know. But that is projecting a personality onto death as a concept. Death is viewed as a person. That's what these texts are doing. Death is viewed in Hosea with a threat of what God plans to do with it. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul brazenly mocks death. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, the grave, where is your victory? So what I want to do this morning is just kind of lean into that personification for a moment. If we go along with these texts and think about death as an individual, what kind of story does the Bible have to tell? In Scripture, it's clear that death is one of humanity's greatest enemies, if not the greatest enemy of all, even though It is an enemy that we ourselves brought into the world. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 that through one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. So that death has passed upon all men because all have sinned. So whose fault is it that death has entered the world? God created a world without death. There was was a time before death entered the world where this was just a a, a wonderful place to live. Imagine a world with no thorns and thistles, no pain or heartache or disease. The ground willingly and freely yielded its fruit. The human body was perfect and enduring. It would last forever. But through Adam, sin entered the world. God had warned the consequences of this. 
If you disobey the one command in the day that you do it, death is coming. You will surely die. And so Adam's rejection of God didn't just open the world to sin. It opened this chasm through which death crept in with sin. And now everywhere sin goes, death gleefully follows, bringing its curse. Sin and death are so inseparable that death is not just our enemy, it is our payment. The wages of sin is death, Paul says. That is, death is what you and I deserve for our sin, and our payday is coming. You're going to collect death like a paycheck, or more appropriately, death's going to collect you. It is relentless. It is merciless. It does not care about your your circumstances or the consequences of its actions. Death willingly takes children from parents and leaves them grieving their whole life. Death deprives families of their breadwinner and leaves them vulnerable to a hostile world. It takes our oldest and dearest friends and leaves a grieving spouse without their lifelong companion. Sometimes it arrives unannounced and by surprise. Other times, death slowly stalks its prey with taunts of, well, you probably have a year. I would give you six months. You might have days. In some tragedies, it takes away hundreds at a time and hundreds at a time, and yet it still finds ways to target individuals and just a a myriad of methods. Only rarely does it capture its prey without pain and terror. And even today, Scripture would say, death is stalking you. Earthly wealth will not cause it to turn away. Beauty will flee and death will replace it. No one possesses power enough to repel death's designs, nor is death going to feel pity on those who have had a, a hard life without comfort. No matter how beautiful, how rich, how powerful, how poor, how insignificant, how famous, ultimately, death will collect you and your grave is going to be a six-foot hole identical to the person next to you. Even worse, for unbelievers, what follows is an eternity in hell the Bible describes as the second death. When death comes calling, it will usher you into a fate so dire that unbelievers will spend eternity wishing they could die. It's not going to be satisfied until every man, woman, and child receives the payment for their sin. And so in Scripture, as the story unfolds, death started his work quickly. He didn't collect Adam and Eve right away waited for a day when they would seek their son Abel and not be able to find him. How they must have mourned the fact that their son Cain could commit such sin as to murder his brother and yet in their heart they know it was their own sin that invited death for their child. Death's job was easy. He rested comfortably in the knowledge that all have sinned, all have come short of God's glory, there's no need At that point in time, there's no need for a law to condemn mankind because sin is not just the things we have done, it's the very nature of who we are. With one small sniff, 
We would fill death's nostrils with our sin and he would know he gets all of us. Indeed, Romans 5.14, the Apostle Paul describes it as death reigned like a king. Collected Adam and Eve after letting them live long lives in the knowledge of their sin. He collected the firstborn of the Egyptians in the final plague, knowing it was only a matter of time that those Hebrews escaped would be his too. And he collected them one by one through 40 years of wilderness wanderings. Even the strongest of men succumbed to death regardless of their position with God. In fact, he was there to collect the blaspheming giant Goliath and even the repentant Samson couldn't escape. There were hints from time to time that death's not all powerful. He went into the fiery furnace before King Nebuchadnezzar with the intention of collecting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But when he got there, there was a fourth individual in that fire who turned him away for a time. For 4,000 years, death reigned like a king, undaunted in its grim task. It enjoyed the prospect of threatening men who passed under his shadow. There was never a time when mankind did not sin, and so there was never a time where death didn't have his way with us. And then, one day, after 4,000 years, a child was born. Often, death would come and steal away an infant from its mother's arms. And no doubt, this infant drew death's attention because though he was born in poverty, it was to the sound of a heavenly chorus. In a manger in Bethlehem, death found for the first time in 4,000 years, there is a holy child with no nature to sin. One can only imagine how death must have hated him that perfect little man. On the outside, that infant looked so vulnerable, but without sin, there was nothing that death could do. The apostle John wrote of this child coming into the world and said that all things were made by him, and without him, there was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. He created Life. He was life. The very Lord of life entered into this world where death reigned and that light shined into the darkness that death loves so much. And so, do you suppose that death hated him just a little bit? Here, for the first time, death could not detect that stench of sin. He could not touch the Lord of life. Although, I would be remiss if I didn't mention he tried. Death tried to claim what was not his. King Herod tried to do death's job and the soldiers sent by Herod were were death's instruments that day. Many families were robbed of their children as the soldiers tore their babies from their mother's arms, but death could not claim Jesus. The Pharisees and Herodians tried to do death's job. They 
conspired on how they might murder Jesus. Even the people of Nazareth, Jesus' own hometown, it is described that one day they rose up and dragged him out of the city and led him to the top of a hill where their city was built that they could throw him down over the cliff. They wanted to watch as the broken body of the Lord of life drained its blood at the bottom of that cliff, but death could not take him. Death might reign over sinners, but Jesus is no sinner. The grave is no match for the Lord of life. In fact, Jesus proved time and time again in his ministry that he was more powerful than death. Even as death failed to claim him, Jesus continually showed to all the world that he is sovereign and he holds sway even over our great enemy, death. First, Jesus protected those who death would try to collect through things like tragedy. In Mark chapter 4, it describes Jesus and his disciples entering into a little boat one evening and this great storm arose on the sea and the combination of the wind and the waves made the disciples certain that this was it. This is the day that death would claim them. Jesus, asleep in the back of the boat, is awoke to the sound of 12 voices screaming at him, Master, do you not care that we're going to perish? And when you picture this, don't forget that Mark also describes that there were other little boats with them. So that same scene played out with other groups that were on the water. All of them shook in fear as they passed through the shadow of death. And then, in one of those boats, a man stands up, and of all strange things, he starts to talk to the storm. He says, peace, be still. And we find out, not only is he the Lord of life, but even the wind and the waves have to obey him. For the first time, we see someone with the authority to protect sinners from death's devices. Jesus could also protect those death would try to collect through sickness. If death death couldn't collect Jesus, at least he could interrupt Jesus' ministry with one funeral after another. That seems to have been the plan for a while. Peter's own mother-in-law lay sick with a fever and it describes in Mark 1.31 that Jesus came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and immediately the fever left her and she served them. And that was no one-time event. He healed the lame and, and lepers. He cured all manner of diseases. He protected those who were near death from falling into its grasp. He could heal them even though they might be right at death's door. Jesus could also reclaim those who had just died. Luke chapter 8, verses 41 and 42 describes, there was a man named Jairus. He was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. 
So when Jairus came to Jesus, it must have been because there was no other hope. I mean, medicine was not going to help. His Pharisee friends could not help. He turned to the Lord of life and proud Jairus fell to his knees before Jesus, pleading for help. Death is about to claim my little girl. I won't claim to know all the forces that were at work unseen during Jesus' ministry, but I will tell you this. It certainly appears like there were supernatural forces intent on stopping Jesus from getting to Jairus' house. The crowd pressed in on him. There was a woman with her own sickness who was reaching out to, to grab for him. And as Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house and he's dealing with all those other things, a messenger comes from the house and it says while he was speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. Can you imagine death's glee at that announcement? How much delight there must have been. It's too late. Your daughter's dead. They approach the house and there is this sound of mourning and the sound of crying and weeping and it was music to death's ears. Jesus told them to stop that music. Death was not going to keep that little girl. And in response, they laughed at him. The very Lord of life standing before them, but all they knew is that death is strong. It's, it's too late. They were certain that little girl belonged to death now. And the story continues that he put them all outside and took her by the hand and called saying, little girl, arise. And her spirit returned and she arose immediately and he commanded that she be given something to eat. Y'all, it is one thing to help the sick it is a wonderful thing to be able to command the wind and the waves, protecting some from death. But Jesus here openly proclaims himself as death's enemy when he gently takes that little girl back from death's grasp. The Lord of life could even reclaim those who death had just taken. Now she may have been dead for an hour or so. We don't know, but... Jesus had the power to take her from death's hand. Jesus could also reclaim those who had been dead much longer. When he entered a little village called Nain in Luke chapter 7, he was met at the gate with a funeral procession coming out of it. It was one of the <laughs> that funeral was one of the examples of death's merciless nature. Nobody wants to see death come to their family. But of all people, death seemed to delight in taunting this one woman. She'd already been visited when her husband was, was taken away. And now the description in Luke seven twelve is, as Jesus came near to the gate, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. This is her only son. Actually, the, the literal words there in the original language are only begotten son, just like it's applied to Jesus. Death tormented this poor woman by taking away her husband and then coming for her son, and the, the population of the city is going to mourn with her, but that's all they can do. 
It is cold comfort, right? We'll, we'll march with her, we'll carry the body for her, we'll, we'll cry with her, and then we'll leave her. And this stranger coming to the gates of the village stops the funeral, stands in front of the pallbearers, stopping them. He tells this woman, don't cry. Even as his own heart's weeping for her. Here's the description, Luke 7, 14 and 15. He came and he touched the open coffin and those who carried him stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And so he who was dead sat up and began to speak and he presented him to his mother. This man was probably dead for several hours. They didn't delay funerals back then the way we do now. It was probably a few hours that it had taken to wrap his body and and collect mourners from the city and set on their way, but it wasn't long enough for death to keep him if the Lord of life commanded him to live. And then, of course, I know you're thinking of Lazarus. If there was ever a time in Jesus' ministry when he proclaimed himself death's enemy, it's when his friend Lazarus died. Four days, Lazarus was in the tomb. This is no near-death experience. Lazarus didn't come out writing some book about my visit to heaven in those four days. Even Lazarus' sisters warned Jesus from getting too close. They said, by now, he stinks. He's been dead four days. He's rotting. The grim effects of death have already started to take their toll on the body. And the people gathering around the tomb were all saying, oh, this is too bad because this man, he's able to heal the blind. Couldn't he have kept this guy from dying if he'd just gotten here in time? What follows is one of those scenes of Scripture I would most like to witness. Jesus commands the stone to be rolled away from the tomb, which is the only thing the people there could do. They weren't going to do anything else that day. Ironically, we're pretty good at opening death's door for him. Jesus stood in front of that open door, that open tomb, and he prayed to the heavenly Father. And when he was done praying, it says he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And death let him go. Didn't have a choice. Can you imagine staring into the opening of some dark tomb and seeing a wrapped figure in white grave clothes slowly appear and start to waddle himself out? Just the kind of stunned amazement that that causes. Jesus proved himself to be stronger than death. Not only that, but by protecting those who were threatened by death, healing those who were drifting into death, and even reclaiming those who death had already collected. Jesus proved himself to be the all-powerful Lord of life. But then another day came. 
the day when our great enemy death, the one who was set free in this world thanks to our sin, the enemy who rejoiced every time he could get that nose full of the stench of sin on us, the awful day came when Jesus himself bore that wretched stench of sin. Oh, heresy, you say. Listen. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Jesus was made to be sin for us. To be clear what that means, Jesus never sinned. But he took our sin onto himself so that whatever sins it is in my life that death so rejoiced over, whether it's the, the selfishness or covetousness or, or lust or greed or anger, all of those things, Jesus took that onto himself. He bore my sin, if you can imagine such a thing. The perfect Lord of life coming to earth taking your sin onto himself, not his own because he had none. But the awful day came when death, who could never touch the perfect son of God, would detect that stench of my sin on Jesus. And death knew he could claim the very Lord of life. Jesus bore our sin and death is the payment for our sin. And you can imagine how much pleasure death would take in collecting. How bad could he make it? It would be a death equivalent to the sins of all God's children. So horrible are the wages of sin which Jesus now owed that death could inflict, in, inflict the most cruel punishments on him. Every punch and slap Jesus suffered through that night of trials was the taunt of death coming. The soldiers were death's tool as they scourged and, and beat and, and the whip ripped open wounds on his back. The crown of thorns crushed into his head. The, the nails ricocheting off bone as they found some space to go through his hands and his feet. That thirst that death so often brings only being answered with vinegar. Jesus hung on that cross for hours of torturous pain. And having inflicted the cruel punishments as possible, death stood by waiting for him to drift into its clutches. That is what happens with crucifixion after all. The victim slowly asphyxiate, losing the ability to breathe as the, the weight of their body draws down so that they can't inhale in their lungs. Much like many other uh, ways of dying, there is this excruciating and these short, rattling gasps that come before death until no more breath can be found. But our enemy was in for a shock. Jesus would not drift into death's hands. The scripture says at the very moment that he should have been slowly gasping for those final bits of air that he cried out with a loud voice, it is finished! And then he entered death's domain. What would have become our enemy's 
crowning moment became a devastating blow when the Lord of life came to his own territory. We cannot, this mortal world cannot comprehend the kind of shock that Jesus' death created. We get small glimpses of it in Scripture when it describes that the, the sky had already gone black, the earth shook, rocks broke apart. It becomes evident he didn't silently and, and helplessly drift into death's clutches. Instead, he attacked death on its own ground. So great was the force of what Jesus did when he died that death lost his grip on many others that day. Matthew tells the story of graves were opened and the bodies of many saints came out and and showed themselves to others. In taking a hold of Jesus, death lost its grip on many others. But even with that, it appeared death had won. The body of Jesus brought down from the cross, buried the very Lord of life, wrapped in grave clothes and carried into the same kind of darkness that he had called Lazarus out from. His body laid in a borrowed tomb, which was fitting because he was only going to borrow it. As Peter so preciously put it, just a few days later, God raised him up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he could be held by it. The Lord of life has no grave. There is an empty tomb that marks the spot where death was defeated. After three days and three nights, that tomb was empty. Jesus, alive again, alive forever, never again will death reign over all men because Jesus, the Lord of life, claims all of those who have faith in him. He has come for them and he lives for them and he died for them and he lives forever having defeated death for his people. Not only has Jesus defeated death, he has done so in a way that the scriptures we read this morning personifies death, pictures it like we have as a person in order to mock it. In Hosea, it is the promise of what he will do. Death, I will plague you. Grave, I will destroy you. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, the apostle Paul describes what Jesus has done. With these mocking questions, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, grave, where is your victory? Where is death's sting? It has none. Just imagine a wasp or a hornet with no stinger. Yeah, it might be scary looking, but what can it really do to you? This is what death is now. It might appear frightening, but for God's people, it can do nothing. Psalm 23 describes death as nothing more than a a mountain casting a scary shadow. You have nothing to fear from the valley of death's shadow when you're walking hand in hand with the Lord of life. In taking the sins of his people and collecting the payment due, Jesus has ended death's reign over God's children. It could not hold him. It will not hold us.
Revelation 1.18, the Lord Jesus appears to the apostle John and identifies himself this way. I am the one who lives and was dead. But look, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of Hades and death. He has the keys. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, came into this world so whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Everlasting life is his to give. He has the keys of death and the grave. Or as my friend Lewis Kiger, I heard him once put it, I don't have anything to fear from death. My King Jesus has already beaten him up and taken the car keys. The fate awaiting sinners after this life is an eternity in hell, what the Bible calls the second death. But only the Lord Jesus, the Lord of life, can save you from that fate. He has the keys of death and hell. And to who else can you turn? Death has or will collect everyone else. But for all those who put their faith in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection a different fate awaits. There is no fear because it has no sting. It will have no ultimate victory. For a believer, all death can do is bring a transition into life eternal. Death himself, in fact, has been put into a place similar to ours. If you're there in 1 Corinthians 15, look up at verse 26. Paul says the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Jesus has conquered death, but has not yet destroyed him. So even as you go through this life, awaiting the ultimate appointment you have with death, take comfort, Christian friend, death itself goes forward knowing that it has an appointment with the Lord Jesus when the Lord of life will destroy it forever. But in the meantime, you're still a sinner. Death still goes forward and has detected that stench of sin on you and he is still the payment owed for your sin. Even today, death stalks you. And whether that appointment is far away or near at hand, the wages of sin is death and your payday is coming. And so I ask you now, do you worry about death's sting? Will passing into your grave leave you in a place of eternal torment, never able to pay the price of your sin? Do you, do you fret? Do you fear over the prospect of suddenly meeting death? Or do you walk hand in hand with the Lord of life? If you don't, I point you to him today. He has redeemed us from death. He has plagued death. He has removed death's stinger and destroyed the grave's power. Victory is his and his alone. Hosea wrote to point us forward to the battle that the Messiah King Jesus would fight. The Apostle Paul wrote to assure us of the victory that Jesus has in fact won. Jesus has defeated death and he alone can grant you eternal life through faith in his name. Repent of your sins. 
and trust him today.